0: So the title of the talk poses a question, what is the purpose of life? And the subtitle suggests that I'm going to tell you the classical and contemporary answers to the meaning of life question. This further suggests that classical thinkers like Plato and Aristotle were concerned with finding the meaning of life. But I see no convincing evidence that they were concerned with this question, at least not in the sense that you might have posed the question about the meaning of life to to yourself and that you might be searching for an answer to it. Meaning of life talk, for better or for worse, seems to be a product of secular discourse. By secular discourse, I mean one that can no longer take for granted that a loving creator God might serve as a principle of explanation in one's thinking about either the world or how to make sense of oneself and one's life as a whole. Secular discourse does not operate with concepts of what is ultimately transcendent. And without that ultimate ultimate transcendent source of explanation, The question of the point of it all becomes much more vexed and troubling. Furthermore, a case can and has been made that the meaning of life query is a post-industrial phenomenon. That the question took hold right at the moment in the West when we were making the transition from a largely agrarian and rural form of life to a largely industrial and urban form of life, in which most people were suddenly forced to sell their labor in a competitive and largely exploitative market system in order to seek out any sort of life for themselves. So it might be a question born out of alienation and anxiety that typifies that kind of life. The question of the meaning of life reaches a crescendo in early to mid 20th century thought and art just after the Great War, when, in Europe at least, the murderous and self-destructive tendencies of humanity reached hitherto unknown proportions and hitherto unrealized consequences, including, and perhaps most especially, the threat of total nuclear annihilation. So with death and the prospect of death and the forefront of European consciousness, the question, what's the point of going on, took on a unique salience and urgency. It was a question born out of a crisis. So I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, existentialist philosophy, but you can think of the great existentialist novelist and philosopher Albert Camus, For him, the question of philosophy is why keep living at all? Why not commit suicide? If we can find no ultimate point, meaning, or significance to the human project, is there any value in continuing it? So while concern for meaning and purpose was paramount on the continent, I don't want to overstate the case about its centrality in 20th century philosophy for whatever reason, WASP culture in Britain and America didn't get too existential. Perhaps we were vaguely embarrassed by the whole enterprise. But questions of meaning uh, for British and American philosophy were thought to be questions of semantics. So this is the territory of the philosophy of language and mind, not ethics. However, in the past 15 years, Uh, The question of the meaning of life, or perhaps what makes for a meaningful life, has started to attract renewed interest within Anglo-American analytic philosophy. So that's the tradition in which I was (coughs) trained. And I think that you're most likely to encounter if you take a philosophy class here at UVA. So if ancient and medieval philosophers were innocent of meaning of life queries... Why do we consistently read this concern back into them? I think this is because they were concerned with the question about the ultimate purpose or goal of human life and with the general project of making sense of one's life as a whole. But they understood the concern in the context of a very practical question, how ought I to live? And they assumed that was a a project worth going in for. And the assumption they all shared is that each of us does want to live well or excellently or even blessedly. So the Greek word for this ultimate goal or purpose is eudaimonia, and the Latin translation of that word is beatitudo or felicitas. Now, many people translate this ultimate purpose of life, its goal or end, eudaimonia or beatitudo, as happiness, in common English usage, however, happiness is a rather light word of little substance. Etymologically, it relates more closely to good fortune or luck. But the good life is not principally a matter of luck for the tradition I'm interested in. <clears throat> so we just have to acknowledge that if we're going to appropriate the term, <coughs> which, which I will do. <clears throat> I will speak of happiness. Another problem is that we tend to think of happiness in terms of a pleasant subjective condition, such that when we ask someone if they are happy, we tend to be asking about their psychology. We certainly don't think we are making a query into objective facts about the kind of person they are, say, what their character is like, or objective facts about their life as a whole, whether it can be truthfully described as living well for a human being. We don't tend to have in mind any ultimate objective measure, but the ancients and medievals did. A good life is one that is lived well. So it's a happy life in a deep, objectively specified sense. Uh, It's a life that has reached an objective goal. So it's hit the target to use Aristotle's language. Okay, so on the one hand, we have a discourse about happiness as a goal or purpose in life where we mean this kind of deep happiness, and on the other hand, we have discourse about the meaning of life. Lots of people have suggested that these are entirely different discourses, and we simply have to choose one or the other. Do we want to think about the meaning of life, or do we want to think about happiness? But one goal of this talk is to try to explore ways in which the two queries might be fruitfully drawn together into something like a unified account. So I wanna start by trying to integrate thought about meaning generally and thought about life generally. And I'm going to turn to the Aristotelian tradition, which in my estimation includes the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, in order to try to make some progress on this front. So I want to think of meaning in terms of the intelligibility of a part by reference to the whole. So for instance, the meaning of a word is a matter of its functional role or its use in a sentence. And moreover, the meaning of a sentence is a matter of its functional role in a larger whole that is a natural language like American English. And language is bound up with forms of life. You understand words in American English by looking at how Americans use them. And Americans use words in order to communicate with one another, and they communicate in order to live together in socially cooperative ways. There is no way to share forms of life or to live together except through communication. That's a general point. Um, And for us, we communicate through language. Um, And I think it's for this reason that Aristotle associates language use and justice, since social cooperation for human animals seems to hang on justice. Now, meaning in this context is holistic. By holism, I just mean the opposite of what I'll call atomism. Atomism tries to build up an aggregate out of individual, independently specifiable parts, or atoms, But language isn't like that. It's not like an aggregate made out of independently specifiable parts. Language is more like an organism in that it is a whole that is always prior to its parts. This is the metaphysical truth behind Wittgenstein's celebrated argument against the idea of a private language, or an isolated language that breaks out in one individual person. A language, Wittgenstein argued, cannot break out in an isolated individual for the simple reason that no sentence uttered by any individual could possibly have meaning in absence of a whole that preceded its construction and that could possibly render it intelligible as a form of communication to another. Meaning isn't private. It's not in the head. It's public in that it's subject to objective criteria recognized by other users of the same language. Meaning has to be communicated to another. Someone else has to be able to participate in it with you. So just as language cannot be understood at an individual or atomistic level, neither can life. For the notion of the whole organism is prior to any individual member or its parts in an analogous way. So to see this, I uh, just wanna consider Aristotle's claim which at first seems kind of crazy, which is that a severed hand is not a hand at all. So a severed hand would be like, you cut off my hand and you put it over there, it's severed, Aristotle wants to say, that's not a human hand. Now, why would he say this? It's not a claim about appearances, gruesome though they might become after a while, you can preserve a hand pretty well these days, and the anatomically trained could still identify the muscle, sinew, nerve, flesh, and bone of a type that manifestly comprises a human hand. <coughs> Aristotle's thought is that when it's cut off from a living human body, the human hand has lost its meaning or its significant significance as a hand. And thereby, it's very identity as a hand. For a hand, after all, is that part by which the human being grasps, hits, lifts, writes, gestures, and so forth. These are actions that give the hand its meaning or significance in human life. Now, a severed hand obviously can't do any of these things. In fact, it can do nothing. But it's also quite literally a lifeless bit of decaying matter. So it's not going to sustain itself as a hand, it's just going to start decomposing uh, into elemental parts um, and start to smell really bad (laughs) and other things. Um, So what Aristotle would say is that a severed hand has lost its form. And its form is its context of significance, which was the source of its intelligibility as a human hand or a human part, part of a living human body. And its form qua hand, its sinews, bones, nerves, flesh, fingers, so arranged, is unintelligible without the form of which it's essentially a part, so a living human body. Human life or human form is that for the sake of which the hand came to be. And without reference to it, it has no meaning as a human hand. So I think what Aristotle's getting with in this example is that my... The parts of my body, you know, my hands and my feet and my my arms, things like this, are vital parts. And the vital operations, for the sake of which they come to be, are part of their definition as parts of a living organism, a living human body. Now, Aristotle thought that no vital process is intelligible without reference to form as a principle of explanation, So you can't know what a vital process is, its meaning or its significance or its identity as a specific sort of process, unless you know that for the sake of which, so the end or the goal, it comes to be. And for a living thing, which has living processes, that end or goal or purpose is the coming to be of the life form, so a human being. Now, there are many parts and many vital processes going on in a living organism like yourself. These form a teleological system that shows how they are unified in accordance with the growth and self-maintenance of the form in question, human form. A living thing, Aristotle says, is engaged in a process that explains its own realization, a process that is the cause of its own coming to be. So to put this another way, organisms are self-movers. They move themselves. Since all of their vital operations form a system for the coming to be and self-maintenance of a single unifying end, the life form. So on your handout, um, that's natural teleological explanation or evaluation. So just to give an example of this general form of explanation at work, and to consider the way in which a unitary end functions within it, consider the material process of mitosis. So that's the doubling, sorting out, and splitting up of chromosomal material. What can be described as the exact same material process can in fact be two distinct vital operations depending on the life form in which the process unfolds. So mitosis is a phase of growth in a living human body, but it's a phase of reproduction in something like an amoeba. Now, if we can't look ahead to the end or that for the sake of which mitosis comes to be and is progressing towards, then we cannot know what kind of material process is actually underway. Is it growth? Is it reproduction? Those are different. So the form, In specifying the end, specifies the very identity, the meaning, or the significance of the process in question. In a case like this, what we want to say is that the end both defines and in defining measures the process. So it both tells you what the process is, and in telling you what it is, it sets a standard of success or failure for it. Um, So the description of what it is also gives you the normative standard for evaluating it. that's how form functions in Aristotle's philosophy. It always does both. It defines and in defining measures. Okay, now Aquinas follows Aristotle in thinking of life um, in terms of this kind of organic unity and in terms of self-movement. So self-movement, Uh, for Aquinas, is unintelligible without the idea of potentiality. Potentiality is a kind of directedness to an end, uh, attending towards a certain goal. And the idea is just that, look, in order for all of these disparate activities and processes to realize themselves in a unified way, such that each serves and sustains the others, they must all be directed towards some unifying end, just call this form. If we understand it in this way, then we can think of vital activity, the activity of living organisms, as a kind of self-actualization or self-realization. And we can understand that as actualizing a potential to attain some end. This explains how we can look at an acorn And know that it is such as to be a full-grown, mature oak. Which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Um, But the acorn has the potential to become an oak when placed in suitable conditions. So that's the basic idea of potentiality. Directedness towards an end or goal. So I've been arguing that life, just life generally, living organisms, is Meaningful. I've tried to connect the concept of meaning to the idea of organic unity or wholeness, and I have associated this unity with form. Form renders meaning and intelligibility upon vital processes and activities of living things. And this would be true if no human being were around to remark upon this. So this form is no mere social construction or anthropomorphizing of nature. It gets on to reality. Moreover, the idea of a life form, much like the idea of a language, is the idea of something general that is also something particular and material, of something that cannot be attached to any one individual on its own, but necessarily picks out many potential individuals, and at some point in history, actual individuals. It is this generality of life and language that makes it meaningful. But in order to get at this, we have to recover the notion of form. Then we are in a position to see that nature is also shot through with value in addition to meaning. So we can speak of natural intelligibility and meaning, but also of natural goods. In fact, I would say that that the real significance of form is that in determining reality in some way, it does thereby set a standard of what is good or bad for it. So this is the idea of natural goodness. In thinking about natural goodness, a useful starting point is its opposite, natural defect. So our metaphysics of life allows us to say that when the essential powers or capacities of a living thing are impeded from realizing their ends, so the mature state of the life form, When some potential fails to become actual, this is a kind of defect or lack. For instance, the oak can fail to develop strong roots due to lack of rain, exposure to a virus, or an infestation of a parasite. These are all ways things can go wrong for the oak. Now, if one encounters such an oak, that is to say one with shallow roots, One could truly assert that its condition is bad, it's defective, it's unfortunate, or it's simply evil. But again, notice that our ability to make a judgment of natural defect depends upon our having in mind the standard of the mature form of the thing, its full actuality or its measure of natural goodness. So for a living thing to be doing well or to be good, is just to most completely or fully exemplify its potentiality or at least be doing things that are on the way to that and aren't in any way impeded from accomplishing that. Now, I want to apply this way of thinking about life to human life and action. Human beings are living things and we're a kind of self-mover, according to Aquinas. Now, human actions are those proper to man qua man, that's language from Aquinas, where man just means human person, it's not a gender concept. So digesting my food uh, is something that happens in me, but it's not a human action in the sense that interests Aquinas. What is proper to man is what can be uniquely ascribed to the human person. So we're different from plants, and that we're conscious, right? We perceive a world and we move about that world uh, through perceptual capacities. But what ma- And animals do that as well. So that's the difference between a plant and an animal. It's a sensate form of life. But what makes us different from any other kind of animal is that we are rational or self-conscious. And what Aquinas says is that rational action or properly human action is moral action. So now we're talking about those activities of life over which a human person exercises rational control. So these are the things for which he can be asked to make meaningful or intelligible to another person by giving his reasons for doing them. This is the sphere of the voluntary. The moral sphere is the voluntary. So as St. Thomas puts the point, Man is the master of his actions through his reason and will, right? So that's the proper moral sphere. Now, my individual actions in this sense are on their face intelligible or meaningful. I can't communicate about them to others and often do. As Elizabeth Anscombe has argued, human actions, properly so called, are subject to a special sense of the question why. They are such as to be called to account, and for that reason, we are responsible for them. So, for instance, I'm standing at the podium talking. Why? Because I'm giving a lecture about the meaning of life. Why? Because I'm a philosophy professor. Uh, That's my job. Why? Why why am I uh, a philosopher, not a firefighter? Uh, Lots of reasons, but one is that I believe pursuing wisdom is central to the good life that I have something unique to contribute there. So in the final analysis, I think that in standing here and giving a talk, I am living well. And I can give you a story about why I think that. Now to talk about living well, to give that kind of description about what I'm doing, it's the most general, uh, but also the most significant or meaningful description of a human action. It's the one that really matters in the final analysis. So when Aquinas says that morality is said properly of man, what he means is that moral or properly human acts are defined in relation to a unifying end. And that end is the same as for any self-mover. It's living well. He thinks that every act is moral because every act can be truthfully described as living well or falsely so described. If it cannot be truthfully described as living well, if it's not the case that I'm giving the talk right now that I'm living well, that's because the action in some way impedes me from realizing my end. Now, Aquinas calls this end happiness. So happiness, well, or in his Latin, beatitudo, um, which I'm going to translate as happiness with all the caveats, Happiness is the defining and unifying goal of any properly human act. Insofar as human acts are done from reason and for reasons, those that can be called to an account and are susceptible to a practical sense of the question why. So again, we need to have that unifying end in order to talk about life and self motion Now, such an end, Aquinas thinks, is necessary for actions to be practically meaningful or practically intelligible. This is his starting point in the so-called Treatise on Happiness in the Prima Secundae of the Summa Theologiae. It's necessary, Aquinas argues, for us to make rational choices at all. So that is to say, to have a rational, deliberative ground for preferring one action over an alternative. And this is necessary for our actions to have the kind of significance that grounds our communication about them with others, that is to say, a communication by giving reasons. And humans, as rational linguistic animals, participate in shared modes of life together. So we're not atoms or isolated individuals. We come to be for the sake of an end that is shared and common with others. Now, in order to get to this last point, which I think is really crucial for thinking about happiness uh, and is missed by almost everyone, sadly, Um, even those who claim to be an Aristotelian, in order to get to this last point that our happiness is something shared in common with others, that it's a common good, we have to say more about happiness as the point or purpose of human life for Aquinas we have to explain what it means to say that happiness is a common good. Now, a common good is distinguished from a private good for Aquinas, and a quintessential private good would be something like bodily pleasure. No one can share in my bodily pleasure, even though somebody else could bring about bodily pleasure in me. Bodily pleasure is mine in the sense that it's entirely a matter of my subjective experience. The good of it redounds only to myself, and no one can share in it with me. And it can be competitive. So what pleases me in that sense might compete with what pleases you. By contrast, a common good is universal, non-competitive, and enjoyed with others in relations of mutual participation. So it's it's a participation relation. Happiness is common to all human beings in virtue of their shared form. So all of us seek it just in virtue of being human. It's not competitive because my pursuit of happiness, at least if I do it in the right way, should in no way detract from anyone else's. So me getting happiness doesn't take away from you getting happiness, okay? So it's not like the milk in the store. Me getting milk might detract from you getting milk. There's only so much milk in the store. Happiness is not like that. Finally, as a common good, happiness is never the sole possession of an individual. The enjoyment or pleasure of a common good is that it is participated in with others. So just to give you an example, the characteristic joy of playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony could never be identified solely with a single French horn player. Such a joy cannot be attained alone, but only with the other members of the orchestra playing together. (coughs) And the joy of playing the instrument is intensified when it's shared. So it's more enjoyable, right, um, when you're playing the whole symphony with others than when you're practicing by yourself alone. Now, not everyone recognizes that happiness is a common good. In fact, I think most people aren't thinking that way at all anymore. When Aquinas discusses happiness as the necessary aim of action, he means formal happiness. So Aquinas makes a distinction between a formal and a material conception of happiness. Now I've been talking about happiness so far in a formal sense. Um, So formally, happiness is what can completely satisfy our capacity for rational desires. So that's our human capacity to will things. Happiness in this sense is being fully stated by a good that is final which comes by way of possessing the universal good, which is the formal object of the will. So being sated has a clear subjective component and is psychologically real, but this kind of satisfaction only comes by way of possessing what is truly or objectively good and perfective of human beings. Um, So it has a subjective component, but only if you get what is objectively good. Now, this formal conception of happiness is what gets deployed in Aquinas' account of human action and free choice. Um, That's the story that I've been giving uh, about happiness as a necessary aim of action that defines and measures it. Everybody wants it, right? But materially speaking, so when Aquinas switches to talking about a material conception of happiness, he means what specifically do you think happiness consists in? Is it wealth? Is it pleasure? Is it fortune? Is it honor? Um, what are you going for, right? You have this desire to be happy, to be fully satisfied, but what is it that you think <laughs> is gonna get you that? Um, and here, Aquinas says, well, people are, are all over the place and there's nothing that you necessarily think um, is constitutive mm-hmm. of, of happiness. Um, so one's material conception of happiness, is their specific vision of the good life? And it could be more or less articulate. It might make no sense at all. It might be beautiful and worth realizing. But the point is that in when you deliberate about what to do, you operate under some material conception of happiness. So you all have one. It might not be very good. It might not be very articulate. You keep revising it over time. Maybe for a while you were going after wealth and then you had a crisis and you realized your life was empty. Um, and so you, you revised your material conception of happiness. Um, so it's not rigid. It's not like a blueprint that you apply, but you have to be operating under something to uh, rationally deliberate at all because there has to be something that you're after Um, that gives you grounds for choosing one thing over another. Okay, so lots of people think that happiness consists in pleasure. So formally, they pursue happiness, um, but materially, they're after the wrong thing. So this raises the question, how do we know what happiness consists in? How can I argue that it's a common good? So there are different ways you could go about doing this, Um, One is to provide an account of practical reason, according to which its first principles are the main constituents of human happiness. So you could talk about basic goods or ends of human life. On such an account, living well is living in accordance with principles of right practical reasoning through the cultivation of virtue, where virtue is understood as dispositions that perfect our human capacities so that they operate for the sake of living well together. Now, this is the sort of account you find in Aquinas. But there's another way to get to the same sort of account, and this is from the first-person perspective. So when you think about the first-person perspective of choice and deliberation and your own reflection upon the question, how do I live? What should I do? Am I, in fact, living well? Um, Now, this question is often posed in medias res, right? In the middle of your life, things are happening. You're busy, you're doing all this stuff, you're trying to get an education, work, make money, maybe you're trying to have a family, you're trying to be healthy, trying to pursue friendships, trying to contribute to your community. There are all these things you're up to, uh, but there's this question, um, what's it all for? Why am I doing any of this? Am I happy? Now, some people ask themselves this question and it elicits a profound crisis. So the person in crisis is a person who suddenly questions in a radical way what they've been doing. So suddenly they no longer see the point in going on the way that they've been going on. And usually this is because their normal life has been upended somehow. Um, So there are lots of examples of this One classical example is Boethius. Has anybody read The Consolation of Philosophy? No? It's so great. You guys should read it. Uh, Yeah, so in The Consolation of Philosophy, uh, Boethius is uh, in prison and he's about to be executed and he's really sad, which makes sense um, because basically everything in life has been taken from him. um, And he's so confused because as a good student of Plato and Aristotle, he thought that he had done all the right things, right? So he had tried to be a philosopher, a statesman, uh, and was very successful. But moreover, he tried to be just, right? But it's justice that landed him in prison, <laughs> OK? He's going to be killed uh, by the barbarian king Theodoric precisely because he did, like the just man often does, something that made uh, the people in power mad. Um, So that's one kind of crisis, right? When you're like, wait, uh, I thought that to live well was to be virtuous, but here I am in prison, hungry, cold, without my friends or my library, and cut off from everything. What? Um, That's one kind of crisis. Um, But I think a slightly more interesting crisis for our purposes um, isn't the guy who suffers from misfortune? which I think is the case with Boethius. He just had bad luck. Um, But the person who has basically gotten everything that he wanted, right? Um, They had this beautiful vision of the good life. They've basically gotten it all. um, And they feel totally empty and miserable, Um, that's a really interesting crisis. How could that be? It's easy to see how the person who suffers from bad luck could feel dejected and down. That's depressing. (coughs) But the person who got everything they wanted um, and they they feel dead inside, um, what's going on there? Um, Now, there's a famous case of this. um, And I have some quotes on the handout. this is the case of John Stuart Mill. (coughs) Maybe you've read some Mill and philosophy. Many people have read Mill on liberty, utilitarianism. Okay, so uh, he's one of the fathers of utilitarian ethical thinking, ethical and political thinking, which is a, a school of thought still very much alive and well uh, and taken very seriously. Um, Mill, in his autobiography, which is so, so fascinating, um, talks about... Uh, This crisis in his mental history, um, which I'm thinking of as a crisis of happiness. So he basically has a mental breakdown. um, And what's strange about the mental breakdown and striking about it, and for Mill himself, is that things are going great. (laughs) Uh, And he has this mental crisis. So if you look at the quote, these quotes are from his autobiography. Uh, Here's Mill. I was accustomed to felicitate myself on the certainty of a happy life which I enjoyed. Through placing my happiness in something durable and distant, in which some progress might always be making, while it could never be exhausted by complete attainment. This did very well for several years, during which the general improvement going on in the world, and the idea of myself as engaged with others in a struggle to promote it, seemed enough to fill up an interesting and animated existence." but the time came when I awakened from this, as from a dream, this was about five years, and it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. Suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes and in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? An irrepressible self-consciousness distinctively answered, no. At this, my heart sank within me. The whole foundation on which my life was constructed fell down. All my happiness was to have been found in the continual pursuit of this end, but the end had ceased to charm. And how could there ever again be any interest in the means? I seemed to have nothing left to live for. So this is incredibly interesting to me because Mill is not a person who is living a shallow sort of life. The first part of his autobiography is about this astonishing liberal arts education given to him by his father, um, and he dedicates himself to promoting, uh, you know, basically maximizing the well-being of everyone. Uh, so he's a do-gooder. Um, he's not a, a selfish, shallow man. Um, But he feels like this giant hole in the middle of his life. Um, And Mill kind of like gets himself, so so he's super depressed for a while. Uh, Feels like he has no reason to live. And then finally he has this kind of catharsis by reading poetry. So Byron didn't do it to him, (laughs) didn't really do it for him, but uh, Wordsworth did. Uh, and in reading Wordsworth, he sort of, um, I mean, it's funny because eventually he's like, yeah, he's not even that good of a poet, but I really spoke to my soul. Um, and he sort of like uh, finds a way to keep going. But then he has to keep going. And what Mel says that he learns to do is basically engage in a kind of life hack so he decides to kind of like hack into his own practical reasoning. Um, and this is a, a description of his life hack, or his solution to his crisis. So it's not, it's not that he gives up his basic convictions. Okay. So it, it wasn't that he realized he was after all the wrong things. That's not what happened. Uh, his solution is as follows. So I never wavered in the conviction that happiness is the test and rule of all conduct and the end of life. But I now thought that this end was only to be obtained by not making it the direct end. (coughs) Those only are happy, I thought, who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness, on the happiness of others, on the improvement of mankind, even on some art or (coughs) pursuit followed not as a means but itself as an ideal end. Aiming thus at something else, they find happiness by the way. The enjoyments of life, such was now my theory, are sufficient to make it a pleasant thing when they are taken en passant without being made a principal object. Once make them so, and they are immediately felt to be insufficient. They will not bear a scrutinizing examination. Ask yourself whether you are happy, and you cease to be so. The only chance is to treat not happiness, but some end external to happiness as the purpose of life. Let your self-consciousness, your scrutiny, your self-interrogation exhaust themselves on that. And if otherwise fortunately circumstanced, you will inhale happiness with the air you breathe, without dwelling on it or thinking about it, without either forestalling it in imagination or putting it to flight by fatal questioning. This theory now became the basis of my philosophy of life, and I still hold to it as the best theory for all those who have but a moderate degree of sensibility and of capacity for enjoyment. That is, for the great majority of mankind. This is kind of life hack, right? Yeah, you want happiness, happiness is the goal, but the trick is don't think about the goal. If you don't think about the goal and you think about something other than the goal, the goal will come. Okay, so... I think Mill is right here, that we should deliberate based on what, that we should not deliberate based on what will please us. That if this is our primary concern, we are bound to be miserable and feel that our lives are empty and meaningless. But we don't need to hack into our practical reason unless we think of the goal in a wrong way. So a missing part of this picture is that Mill is a hedonist about value. And it's Mill's hedonism his thought that pleasure is the measure of a good and happy life, that's the real problem. And he sees this from inside his own experience, his own crisis, right? And even his catharsis isn't enough. Poetry isn't enough, right? He has to hack into his practical reasoning. Okay, so I think that... why. I've, Why I bring up Mill's crisis and why I like thinking about it is that it illustrates how from within the first person perspective, your own conception, your own material conception of happiness might seem like it fails you by its own standards. And in the case of of hedonism, um, the idea that pleasure is the measure of choice and action Um, I think Mill starts to see that um, that's perhaps not the right measure. I mean, he doesn't draw that conclusion, but it's one that you might draw from looking at his experience. Um, and And I think that pleasure is still the predominant view. Like, when people think about happiness, about what will make you happy, they are thinking in terms of pleasure. Now, one way you might try to dislodge people of this idea is to borrow a famous thought experiment by a philosopher, Robert Nozick. So he talks about a pleasure machine. So this is just a machine that you can hook yourself up to, and you're going to experience all and only pleasures, okay? Um, And you can even program it so that you experience, like, lots of the higher pleasures, right? Um, So maybe you you like philosophy and so you're like, look, I just really, I want the pleasures of contemplation. Um, Now, Nozick thinks that reasonable people won't want to get into that machine. That they will be horrified by the idea of just getting into a pleasure machine. Um, But plenty of thoughtful and educated people say that they will get into that machine. So I was recently at Yale University Uh, where I shared the stage with Dr. Lori Santos, who's in the psychology department. Um, She teaches the most popular course in Yale's history. She has about 1,500 students. I went to her class, which is incredible. Um, And she admitted on a stage with thousands of students in the audience that she would get into that machine. Um, And I'm sitting there like, oh, no. (laughs) Uh, This is totally scandalous. How can you say that? Um, What is really wrong with getting into the pleasure machine? What is the basis of the horror that I feel at the thought of it? Um, And it strikes me that what... um, What grounds my negative response to the idea is that the pleasure machine is divorced from reality. Right? So if we're thinking about value, about what is really good, we're thinking about reality. Um, Now the hedonist says that the only intrinsically valuable thing is pleasure, but that's solipsistic at least insofar as we understand pleasure as the subjective experience undergone by an individual in response to some stimulation. It's all about me. Now for Aquinas and the tradition that I'm working in, the good life is about activity, not pleasure. Enjoyment is secondary to the activity enjoyed. So the good life is about who you are and what you do, not what subjective experiences you undergo, or insofar as your subjective experiences are valuable or worth undergoing, it's because of the activities that give rise to that subjective experience. Um, now, humans are part of reality, and there is a reality about ourselves to know and to love. And these capacities that make us properly human, our intellect and our will, are capacities that connect us to reality. Our intellect allows us to grasp the truth about the way things are, and our wills allow us to possess the good. These are two different ways to be connected with reality. If I experience love in the experience machine, it's solipsistic, it's not real, because real love is union or communion with a real good. In the pleasure machine, there is no union with a good. There's only pleasure. So the problem at the heart of Mill's vision of the good life is the failure to account for the fact that as creatures with intellect and will, we desire to know and to love what is real and outside of ourselves. We are not mere pleasure seekers. Our happiness must be understood in terms of our capacities to know and to love because our perfected condition consists in the fullest exercise of this potential. To know and to love is to be in communion with reality, with things outside of ourselves. So the meaning and the meaningfulness of human life hangs on the sort of communion that defines possessing the truth through knowledge and possessing the good through the love that defines the will. (coughs) Now, what can fully satisfy our rational capacities to know the truth and will the good? Aquinas' answer is God. God is the object that most fully satisfies our desire to know because God is the fullness of being or reality. To know God is to know the totality of being. If you know God, there is nothing left for you to know. And as for what we can love, here again for Aquinas, the answer is God. The only thing that can fully satisfy our desire for the good is that which is universally good, that which completely satisfies our desire for the good and cannot be lost to us. Anything short of this will leave us dissatisfied, lacking, or to some extent unfulfilled. Now, I think what's interesting um, about the case of Mill is that he's missing this idea of communion, and I think it's related to his missing the idea that our happiness is a common good, that it's a kind of friendship or communion with another. Friendship is sharing life with another, which is grounded in reciprocal love. Friends will the good of the other. But to will the good of the friend, we must know the friend, and to know the friend's true good, Now, Aquinas thinks that the highest form of friendship is that which we can have with God. We know and love him fully when we have been beatified by our participation in his life. So in closing, I just want to return to Mill's crisis. Mill was a do-gooder, and he thought do-goodery would make him happy in the sense of a pleasant, subjective experience. But instead, it led him to misery and crisis. What is missing from his life is desire for communion and friendship in self-transcendent love. Thank you for your attention.